Welcome to the Gestalt IT Rundown, where each time we meet, we run down the news of the week with a variable degree of snarkiness. I'm your host, Stephen Foskett, and joining me for this uh, special episode is co-host Chris Grundeman. Welcome to the show, Chris. Hi, Stephen. Thanks for having me. As I'm sure you're aware, today, January 26th, is Australia Day, which marks the 1788 landing of the first fleet at Sydney Cove. So congratulations, or not, I guess, depending on your perspective. So let's dive into the news of the week. Google has finally announced that they'll be doing away with the G Suite Legacy Free Edition, forcing everyone currently taking advantage of that grandfathered status into a paid Google Workspace account. While some of this is a long time coming, uh, for others it may be an unwelcome surprise. What does this mean for Google and legacy G Suite users? Yeah, so as you mentioned, Stephen, I think that a lot of folks saw this coming. Um, there were several folks that I know that were using the G Suite uh, legacy system and, uh, and not having to pay for it for quite a while, which is great. Um, and, and the rebrand happened quite a while ago, right? So, you know, originally this was actually called Google Apps for your domain. Then they called it Google Apps. Then I think in 2016, they called it G Suite. And in 2020, they updated to Google Workspace, which I think was really looking at kind of the dynamic nature of remote work. Uh, and, and, and right on time, right? Uh, some folks who are using their own domain with the G Suite formerly didn't have to pay. Uh, that was originally a free option and has become a pro option since then. And now Google is saying, okay, everybody who has that old G Suite legacy and isn't paying for the full workspace experience is going to have to upgrade to Google Workspace. Uh, the nice thing is they are giving everyone until the middle of the summer. I think July 1st is the deadline to move over. Uh, so before then folks need to upgrade to Google Workspace, um, which is basically the same thing as G Suite and really just rebranded. Uh, they have done uh, a lot of work on the UI and kind of unifying all of the apps together. Uh, but uh, overall, it's not really a switch other than just uh, it's time to start paying. Honestly, I think it's a good move for Google and makes a lot of sense. So Stephen, Intel has announced that they will launch a new ASIC for OEM customers at ISCC ISSCC in February. Their talk, entitled Bonanza Mine, an ultra low voltage energy efficient Bitcoin mining ASIC, will showcase the 7 nanometer BZM1 ASIC and will be somewhat ahead of the latest Bitcoin ASICs from Bitman of China on a power per hash basis. But their second generation, BZM2, is listed in an SEC filing along with a note that Intel will be supplying mining operation grid infrastructure. What should we make of an Intel Bitcoin ASIC? Yeah, this is really weird because, you know, Intel has never been involved in this market in the past. And frankly, the uh, ASIC mining industry, uh, generally uh, focused on Bitcoin, is, um, well, let's say specialized and not universally respected. Uh, but that being said, of course, a lot of uh, crypto mining happens on GPUs and even CPUs. Uh, along with FPGAs, which of course Intel is a major player in. And so uh, having Intel announce a dedicated miner chip, well, having a company announce a dedicated miner chip is actually not a big deal. Having Intel be the one to do it is really kind of a head scratcher. I think what we're seeing here, quite frankly, is um, really all about Intel's uh, manufacturing capabilities and needs. In other words, Intel is, uh, from the looks of it, 
trying to find a way to fill their manufacturing pipelines with chips that they can produce uh, economically on their latest process nodes. And uh, frankly, a Bitcoin ASIC is a pretty decent product for them to get into because it uh, goes to their strengths. I mean, Intel already has a lot of capability in terms of designing uh, chips that do math. Uh, that's kind of their thing. And uh, that's basically all a Bitcoin ASIC is. So I kind of get it. I kind of see why it makes sense for them to get involved in this. I think the real answer, like I said, is that they're going to use this to kind of fill in around the edges of manufacturing on the seven nanometer process and in the future on the four uh, process. And um, also, you know, they probably had a company that, um, you know, client that wanted their products. Uh, for me, the biggest takeaway and the most interesting aspect of this story is the fact that Intel is going to come out of the gate way ahead of their comp competition. So Bitmain in China has been developing Bitcoin ASICs for years. And uh, on a hash per watt basis, the uh, BZM1 is going to substantially outperform Bitmain's latest uh, chip. And on a uh, hash per watt basis, you know, the, 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 the BZM2, which may be built by Intel or maybe built by TSMC, we don't know, um, ought to really clobber Bitmain. And the fact that Intel's able to do this uh, with their first two processors out of the gate suggests that maybe, just maybe, Bitcoin ASICs are an opportunity for companies to get involved with. I guess we'll see. Chris, uh, Meta, also known as Facebook, just announced that they're calling the AI Research Supercluster, or RSC, uh, to add another acronym to the IT lexicon. They claim that it's among the world's fastest AI supercomputers and that it will accelerate AI research and help us build the metaverse. The uh, Meta announcement states that RSC will help them build newer and better AI models, work across hundreds of different languages, and uh, develop new augmented reality tools and more but it also includes the name of a couple of companies we're familiar with. So how big of a deal is this and what does it mean for NVIDIA? Yeah, so NVIDIA uh, apparently has won this contract uh, and it was introduced as already somewhat built apparently because there's lots of photos that have come out around it. So we know quite a bit about uh, how RSC is built up. And I think it's interesting to dive into that a little bit. Um, apparently it's using uh, 760 NVIDIA DGX A100 systems. Um, and then each of those has eight NVIDIA A100 GPUs. Now, I think that's interesting, and I'll come back to that in a minute, um, because they're using NVIDIA DGX systems, not AGX partner systems. Um, and, and I want to mention that a little bit, but first kind of a more of a rundown of, of what else is included. Uh, they're doing networking with their own NVIDIA Quantum 200 gigabit per second HDR InfiniBand. Uh, and they're doing that in a two-level clause fabric that's not oversubscribed. Uh, and uh, it's pretty interesting. In the pictures, you can see uh, liquid cooling as well in the racks. Uh, so that's, that's pretty interesting. Along with the networking cables, there's uh, cooling cables. Then uh, storage actually has come in from pure storage. It's 175 petabytes uh, of a pure storage flash array. And then there's 10 petabytes of pure storage flash blade uh, for the NFS storage. And then finally, there's 46 uh, petabytes of cache storage uh, in Penguin Computing Altus systems. Um, Altus is, is Penguin's AMD Epic server line. 
And then there's also uh, in the pictures, you can see that there's some non-GPU compute racks as well. But what I do think is interesting, uh, again, going back to that choice for NVIDIA to use the DGX uh, systems, which are their own in-house systems and not uh, an HGX uh, partner system, um, you know, they, they've talked a lot about supporting partner OEMs and about building an ecosystem. And in this case, when there's tens of millions of dollars on the line, they went uh, in-house. Obviously, um, a story we're going to talk about a little bit later today may have been affected by this because, um, you know, as they've been as they've been courting AMD, uh, there's been some antitrust rumblings around that. And, uh, and this talk about ecosystems may have broken down around the fact that they're, you know, now going in-house. Overall, this is fairly exciting. Uh, I think that, you know, a move toward like this makes a lot of sense for Facebook, definitely. Uh, they're, you know, potentially competing with a lot of other big spenders in the space uh, for AI supremacy or, or at least AI kind of compatibility uh, along those lines of, of Google and, and Microsoft and AWS and others. So um, pretty big news, uh, good, good news for NVIDIA, obviously. Um, perhaps as, uh, you know, Intel is, is winning on the Bitcoin side, they may be, you know, losing a little bit here, um, but time will tell. Pavilion Data might not be as familiar a name to everyone uh, as it is to us here at Gasalt IT, but the company recently received a new funding round and a management refresh. CEO Dario Zamarian is joined by a team that now includes CPMO Shreder Subramanian to focus Pavilion on high-performance scalable storage for modern applications. What does this funding round say about Pavilion and the storage industry in general? Yeah, so Pavilion is one of those companies that has been uh, operating for quite a while and building some, you know, interesting storage capability for quite a while as well. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you know, this is this is a new funding round, uh, Series D. Uh, the company's uh, original funding came in 2014, and then 2016, 17, 18, 19. So they were on the the path to get, you know, just sort of incremental funding for a while. But this is a pretty big one. And the notable thing for me is that they're bringing in these execs. So Sridhar is actually somebody that I know uh, from many, uh, many different companies and uh, interactions over the years. A very, very smart guy and somebody who knows a lot about storage, but also about the storage market. And for me, that's the big takeaway here. And uh, it says a lot about the storage industry. So instead of trying to build another general purpose storage system, which is frankly what Pavilion was doing in the past and what a lot of storage companies were doing in the past, they're really trying to focus on specific applications that need the kind of capability that they're bringing to the table. So, oh, you need scalability and high performance. Uh, you know, what are the applications that really do that? And it reminds me of some of the moves of other companies that we've talked about here on the program, including Weka and Vast Data, Infinidat, uh, Pure Storage, as you mentioned. Um, a lot of these companies, the new uh, work that they're doing, the new development that they're making is really uh, all around verticalizing the storage experience. So as I said, instead of building a general purpose device, they're going to try to build a device that matches a specific market need. I think that's very sharp, and I'm very happy to see that this is happening. Uh, the other thing, as I said, is this is a decent amount of money. It should get Pavilion to the kind of leeway they need to, to make this thing happen if they are able to make it happen. And so I say congratulations to the team. In other funding news, uh, MinIO just hauled in $103 million in funding. 
uh, bringing a total valuation over a billion dollars. So uh, MinIO is officially a unicorn. This is only their Series B, and the company got this far with just $23 million. Uh, although they're everywhere in the cloud, uh, what's MinIO's next move with all this money? Yeah, this is really exciting, uh, Stephen. You know, obviously, uh, MinIO is known to the Gestalt IT crowd. They presented at Cloud Field Day. Uh, and as you mentioned, you know, becoming a unicorn is, is obviously pretty exciting. And I think it's super exciting that this company in particular is doing it because they really are based in the open source. Um, so their high-performance object storage is released under the uh, GNU Afero uh, general public license version 3.0, which, which is super exciting that that's kind of the basis of their, of their business and they've really built from there. Uh, as far as the future, you know, they're already claiming to be you know, the only object storage suite that's available on every public cloud on every Kubernetes distribution, uh, as well as being on the private cloud and the edge. So where can they go? It seems like they've gone everywhere they can. However, obviously all of those areas are growing and I think we'll see them continue to grow along with it. Uh, also from some of the quotes in the press release, it sounds like they have their eye on telco infrastructure as well. So maybe some mobile edge or um, 5G type deployments are, are in the works as well. Uh, pretty exciting stuff for sure. Diving in a little bit deeper, um, it is official that Intel's mega site in New Albany, Ohio, will house a massive chip lab, Intel's first all-new chip-making facility in 40 years. Located near Columbus, the capital and home of the Ohio State University, the announcement covers the construction of two out of eight planned fabs on the 1,000-acre site. It seems that these will be leading-edge fabs and will benefit from federal and state subsidies. Is it time to call Ohio the center of the tech universe? Well, speaking uh, normally from Ohio, um, you might think that I would say yes, but kind of no. Um, Ohio's great. It's a great manufacturing location. Uh, I think this is a great, great move for Intel. Um, keep in mind that, uh, as I said, Ohio has a long history as a uh, manufacturer. It's got a huge workforce, a lot of land, a lot of power, a lot of water, decent you know, weather, Kind of everything you could want in manufacturing and that's why there's so much going on there i think that it's uh you know probably the number two or number three site of uh, motor vehicle manufacturing at least in terms of components and suppliers and so on uh it's also very very active in a lot of high-tech uh, materials science and materials engineering and manufacturing and um you know although most of the people probably just fly over it and don't even look down uh, you know, it's a, it's a pretty good place for a company to build this kind of uh, massive operation. And that's exactly what Intel is doing here. As I said, the, the, the mega, <laughs> mega scale of this thing is just kind of mind boggling. I mean, it's the size of a city, really. And they are going to be um, building uh, potentially as many as eight fabs on the land, plus associated supporting infrastructure. So, uh, from an Intel perspective, uh, this is what we knew they were going to do, building a new mega fab, and uh, Ohio is the news. Now, there are some uh, gotchas here before we get too excited, though. Uh, number one, this stuff takes a while to build. So don't expect that the, uh, the chip uh, shortage is going to be alleviated thanks to the Buckeye State anytime soon. These things won't even come online for another three or four years at the earliest. And that's assuming that Intel is able to get access to the latest uh, equipment in order to build out the fab. Number two, keep in mind that this fab is only going to be producing chips so far. 
So although Pat Gelsinger, when he was sitting with the governor of Ohio and the senators and all the fancy politicians did say that they want to go all the way from sand to finished product here in Ohio, uh, that's not what's going to happen initially. Initially, this is going to be a chip fab, and those chips are actually going to have to be apparently exported to China for packaging before being sent back to the U.S. uh, to be integrated into products, theoretically, or other countries. So um, that's a bit of a problem initially. Now, over time, uh, Intel could indeed include packaging as well as other operations here in Ohio. But uh, so far, I'm not seeing that as part of this announcement. Another problem is that the chip shortage is actually not really due to a shortage in capacity of the latest and greatest high-end chips. So, uh, you know, we're talking seven and four nanometer here, but but most uh, components, especially the components that are slowing down production of cars and other appliances and devices, uh, those are not the latest generation chips. In fact, they're old, old chip, uh, you know, 40 nanometer, that kind of stuff. Um, and, and those chips uh, aren't going to be helped at all by this announcement. This has nothing to do with that. Uh, theoretically, uh, producing more high-end chips could sort of um, move everything up a process node up, which might free up capacity there. But, you know, again, that's something we're not really going to see much benefit from until, you know, five, six, seven years down the road at the earliest, or until other companies build um, older process node fabs. Then there's also the question of money. So Intel is investing, as it says, the headline is $20 billion in these two fabs out of eight here in Ohio. Uh, But the question is, what did Intel get in return? Uh, So far, the government of Ohio, uh, the governor is being very, very quiet, and he's not telling us what the state offered. But what we did hear is that this was a competitive process with as many as 40 different sites competing for the Intel business. And an Intel spokesperson on the local Ohio radio said that the Ohio package was the most uh, lucrative, or not not lucrative, compelling, something like that. Basically, Ohio offered the most money in order to get this. We don't know how much that is, but we can kind of read the tea leaves. So another thing that one of the Ohio spokespeople said was that Ohio is spending six cents for every dollar that Intel is spending which would put us at about $1.2 billion of Ohio's investment. So that's getting us a little closer, uh, and that's a pretty good amount of money. Another thing we know is that Ohio recently changed the law here to support so-called mega projects. And this law would allow any company that invests over a billion dollars in the state to get 30 years of job creation tax credits which based on the estimated size of the jobs that we're talking here could be about $660 million of savings for Intel in, uh, in that 30 years. Uh, and this just happened basically to make this Ohio uh, Intel project happen. We also know that the United States Innovation and Competition Act, which passed the Senate in June, would include $52 billion in incentives for companies that research, develop, and manufacture high-end chips in the United States. Now, Intel's not the only company in the running for that, but Intel is certainly trying to get their share of that money as well. And so all this added up means that effectively, Pat Gelsinger deserves uh, the applause of Intel shareholders because it is very likely that the company is going to build this $20 billion or perhaps $80 billion project 
with substantial federal and state funds. Uh, in fact, uh, substantial in the, in, the, in the numbers of $20, $30 billion uh, estimated to support this investment. And that's frankly a win for Intel. So overall, this is good news. It's good news for Intel. It's good news for the chip economy. Um, it's mm, news for people <laughs> who are uh, looking at the tax revenue side of things. Uh, but frankly, it's good to have this stuff uh, being manufactured and Ohio's a decent place for it. So good job, Intel. Yeah, absolutely. And I guess if they're going to save over $600 million in, in workforce tax incentives, that means they're going to create quite a few jobs, um, which is great to see uh, you know, AI potentially, uh, which is what a lot of these chips will be used for creating jobs. Uh, and I'll definitely be looking out the window of my plane as I fly over for that thousand acre facility uh, in the future. Uh, switching back from Intel to NVIDIA, uh, NVIDIA, uh, their planned takeover of chip rights company Arm looks to be off. The company hasn't announced anything officially, but reporting suggests that NVIDIA will pay their $2 billion breakup fee to SoftBank and Arm and walk away from the deal after having failed to secure approval from China and the US government, moving to block it. Uh, this was always a controversial deal, and we at Gestalt IT were quite skeptical that it would be approved. So no huge surprise here, but it does uh, look like it's off. And uh, maybe ARM will IPO instead. What do you think, Stephen? Yeah, so I think we should note first that this is not confirmed. NVIDIA has yet, not yet said that this deal is off. But a lot of news sources, including Bloomberg and TechCrunch, with very connected uh, reporters, are saying that it's, it's really off. Um, this does come as no surprise for us. Another thing that we're hearing, as, as you mentioned, is that SoftBank is already starting the process of filing an IPO for ARM, which they wouldn't do if the deal was on. So I think that we can be pretty confident that it's not going to happen. And it's not going to happen for a number of reasons. Now, back in uh, 2020, uh, I did an op-ed here at Gestalt IT basically saying it's not going to happen. And so I'm not trying to uh, cheer for myself here because quite frankly, um, well, this is not anything to cheer for. It's not anything to boo. It's just how it is. And the reasons that I said it wasn't going to happen are pretty much what came to pass. In other words, uh, governments all around the world looked at this thing and said, I don't really want ARM to be controlled by a chip maker. ARM is sort of, uh, as you said here, and as Bloomberg says, Switzerland. In other words, it's the uh, chip architecture that anyone can use, and it is used by everyone uh, from American companies, notably Apple, but also NVIDIA and Qualcomm and, you know, Marvell and Micron and Broadcom and even Intel, but also, of course, international companies. Samsung uh, is a huge uh, ARM licensor and user as are the entire uh, phone maker in your market in China. Uh, they have many, many uh, native ARM manufacturers there and manufacturing devices and so on. And um, frankly, none of those people want to lose access to this. And if NVIDIA, which is a maker not only of uh, processors, but also GPUs and connectivity, if NVIDIA controls it, I think there was some concern that they could restrict it either based on competitive uh, reasoning or based on government pressure. That's the other aspect here, because NVIDIA being an American company controlling what had been a very international product from uh, spanning Britain and Japan and China, 
that would have been uh, very concerning to people, for example, in China who could have lost access to the ARM architecture for political reasons. All of this adds up to say this thing wasn't going to happen, and sure enough, it looks like it's not. The next move, uh, though, is that SoftBank needs to do something with ARM. They have financial needs uh, that, that need to move this thing forward. And frankly, the entire industry needs SoftBank to do something with ARM and something good. In my opinion, an IPO is a pretty good move because it would allow this product to uh, be funded in an appropriate way. It would allow SoftBank to kind of wash their hands of it somewhat, and it would allow uh, ARM to continue in a real international way, you know, and, and, and be that Switzerland uh, that it, we all need it to be. So I think that's a very good move. I would love to see it happen. Um, I would love to see a very strong ARM uh, company, if you'll forgive the, the, the pun there, uh, they made a processor called Strong Arm at one point. I'd love to see a very strong arm out there in the world that can uh, compete on chip architecture with with the best of them, and I'd love to see it be an international thing. So I think that this is a good move overall. Um, you know, honestly, I, I'm just still scratching my head over why Nvidia thought that they could pull this thing off ever, um, and I guess that's a two billion dollar lesson for them. Yeah, and if we look at this net-net uh, in net the week's news, NVIDIA's had to pay the $2 billion breakup fee, which definitely uh, overshadows the tens of millions of dollars they made in the meta deal. Uh, and uh, Intel's coming out with a bunch of tax breaks in Ohio. So uh, I don't want to claim a winner on the week's news, but uh, maybe we have one there. Looking at the week ahead, Networking Field Day is starting today, January 26th, and running through the end of the week. Uh, that's NFD27, so look for the hashtag on Twitter. Uh, also, Cloud Field Day 13 is going to be coming up February 16th through the 18th. Uh, and then Mobile World Congress is a little further out, February 28th through March 3rd. So keep an eye out. Well, thanks very much for joining us, Chris. And uh, we will be back with another Gestalt IT News Rundown next Wednesday. Uh, this podcast and video are published uh, on YouTube as well as on your favorite podcast platform. And we also post our videos on our Facebook page, uh, facebook.com slash gestaltit. So we'll be back next Wednesday to talk about all the IT news of the week that was. And uh, until then, for myself, Stephen Foskett, for uh, Chris Grundeman and Tom Hollingsworth, who is currently running our Networking Field Day event, here's wishing you and yours a happy, happy day.